read a lot, write a lot, and don't give up. What is there to lose to put yourself out there, put your work out there? Yeah, okay, people may not like it. It may end up in the bin. But if you don't put it out there, you will never know. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I'm just actually back from the fabulous Northern Beaches Readers Festival held at Avalon, which focused on commercial fiction, and it was an absolutely huge success. Fantastic team of commercial fiction authors and women who were organising that, including director Sandy Docker. So shout out to the team there who did an absolutely stellar job of creating an amazing festival program for readers who often don't get a look in at literary festivals. Some of the bigger literary festivals, Sydney Writers, Melbourne Writers Festival, while they're fabulous and have amazing authors there, a lot of the books and the authors that are covered aren't necessarily the books that are widely read and enjoyed by so many readers. So it was fantastic to see so many well-known authors and enthusiastic readers gathering together to celebrate books and reading and watch out for that one on your calendar next year because it will definitely be a repeat performance. The highlights of the weekend for me were facilitating two panels. One was a historical fiction panel, Tales from the Past, and one was Matters of the Heart, a romance panel. And Also sitting in on some great sessions and meeting fabulous reader and listener, and this was a real highlight for me, meeting Fiona Taylor. If you're out there, shout out to you, Fiona, who had flown up from Melbourne for the festival and actually took the time to come and talk to me, tell me how much she loved my books, how much inspiration she's gained from the podcast. And Fiona, I have to tell you, it absolutely made my day to have that conversation with you and to hear how much you've gained and continue to enjoy in, in the podcast. So I'd actually really say to any readers out there, or anybody listening, if there are any authors out there who really enjoy their work or any podcasters for that matter, definitely if you meet them in person, don't be shy about letting them know that because it absolutely does make our days. And also maybe giving reviews on the podcast platforms that you listen on or reviews on Goodreads if it's books or wherever you get your books, Amazon, Booktopia, because they make the world of difference apart from just affirming to us that we are doing the right thing and that we're providing something that readers and listeners really want to continue enjoying. It allows other new readers and listeners to find our products as well. So thank you so much, Fiona, for that. Shout out to you and just really lovely to meet you. In personal writing news, after a very busy few months with lots of family things going on in which my writing has had to take a back seat, unfortunately, I am getting back into it. So I've started work on a novella, a novella set in Yarraby, which is a part of a project that's happening in the next 12 months with a a number of other authors. It's set in the town of Yarraby where my first novel, Blackwater Lake, was set and where the current book I'm working on, Out of the Ashes, is also set. 
So I'll be working on both the novella and the novel over the next few months. I also have a women's fiction title brewing, so I have plenty to go on with and I'm really pumped to get back into some regular daily writing and to get some words down on the page. Meanwhile, my manuscript, Because Your Mind, is out there doing the rounds of publishing houses, which I'm trying not to think about because it's always quite nerve-wracking to think that somebody might be reading your manuscript. In teaching news, I'm working with a few emerging authors on their books and doing some mentoring, which is really gratifying. And I also have an online course coming up at Writing New South Wales in October. It's around mid-October if you look on the Writing New South Wales website and also on my website, I'll be popping it up there. It's called Turn Up the Tension. And It's a course I've taught numerous times before and always goes down really well with people who are trying to get that conflict and tension onto the page. I'm also starting to plan some courses and workshops and retreats for 2023. So keep an eye on my website. If you're interested in coming along to a retreat, maybe email me and let me know and I'll start a a list of people who are keen and I'm just looking at where those might be and how they'll be organised. So I'll be working on those plans in the coming months and having that up by the end of the year for people who might be interested. I also want to let everybody know that my last release, All We Dream, will be on sale, the digital format for the month of October on amazon.com.au. And it's going to be just $1.49. It's an Amazon monthly deal. And it's, yeah, if you haven't read it yet, if you'd like to grab a copy of All We Dream, it's a dual timeline women's fiction with historical and romantic elements set on the south coast of New South Wales. And if you didn't catch my chat with the fabulous Michelle Barraclough on the Writers Book Club, I did do a deep dive into All We Dream with Michelle talking about the writing process, the revision process, and a whole lot more things about the book. So you can grab All We Dream for $1.49 at amazon.com.au for the month of October. So before we get on to this week's guest, I also want to give a shout out to recently signed up Patreon supporter Victoria Brookman, who is of course also an author and Victoria joined me on the Convo Couch a couple of months ago to chat about her writing and her debut novel Burned Out. So you can find that chat with Victoria on the podcast and on the website. And thanks so much to everybody out there who is supporting the, the uh, podcast on Patreon. For your patience and the delay with getting the bonuses to you in the last few months, I'm working backwards. So the August bonuses went out last week. I'll be working back through July and June and then September in the next week or two. So keep an eye on your email inbox for the links and the newsletters and the bonuses for the Patreon supporters. And also there's a link to sign up to Patreon on the Rights for Women website and also on Instagram, there's a link in the bio. Now on to this week's chat. My guest today is debut author S.D. Hinton. Born in Melbourne, she worked as an anaesthetic nurse within the public health system before moving into health education. She's travelled extensively and unconventionally and spent a year living in a loft apartment in Istanbul, writing and learning Turkish, which I'm definitely going to be asking her about. She now lives in Western Victoria and writes full-time, having overcome a lifelong struggle with dyslexia, which I'm also really interested to talk about. She loves crime thriller novels, particularly from writers such as Peter Temple, Dennis Lehane, Gary Disher and Candace Fox. And her debut novel, The Brothers, has been described by books and publishing as a masterclass in menacing tension, atmospheric and moody. The novel chills with its subtle allusions to an unknown enemy that is too close for comfort. Perfect for readers of Gary Disher, Chris Hammer and Jane Harper. The Brothers combines the idyllic Australian surf town setting with unseen dangers, both physical and mental, that lurk in the shadows. Absolutely 
brilliant review there from Books and Publishing and really looking forward to talking to Esther Hinton about the book and her writing. Serena, welcome to Rights for Women and congratulations on the release of The Brothers. Thank you very much, Pamela. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about it. It's great. Before we, we get into the actual book, reading your bio, there was a line that really caught my attention, a couple actually. The one that first grabbed my attention was that you, in, as part of your writing background, that you wrote in a loft in Istanbul. <laughs> I'm really yeah. interested to hear about that. Can you tell us how you came to be a fiction author and maybe what your writing background is? Okay. Look, it's a, been a 20-year journey. It started way back many, 20 years before that, but I'm dyslexic. And at that point, and of course, when I went through school, there, dyslexia wasn't recognised and certainly if it was, there was no adequate sort of management plan on how to get over it. But so when the writing bug first hit in my early 20s, I just, I didn't have the confidence. I could barely spell and put a, a sentence together. It was a really powerful urge and I can remember how difficult it was to shut it down, but I did. Anyway, 20 years later and got on with my life. So 20 years later, the, the urge to the right hit again. I don't know where it came from, but this time, of course, I, I'm Computers had arrived, so with that came the programs that would help to pick up on the errors, to help your spelling mistakes, etc. And so that provided me a level of freedom to explore and learn and not be judged in the process, because that's part of the dyslexia thing, is certainly in my era. You're judged very harshly. You're either thought to be not very bright or certainly don't concentrate and don't pay attention. So you were being judged the whole time. That impacted on your self-esteem and your willingness to participate. And it spreads across every subject, not just English, of course. So with the advent of computers, it took away that judgment. And so in the privacy of my own home, in my own time, I was able to explore. So I just started writing, basically. That, that was it. The characters came into my head and I think had been niggling in the background there for a while. And so I just, it really basically started with character development and the plot built around them. The Brothers is my fifth full-length manuscript. So the others who were testing grounds. Yeah. Yeah. Writing in Istanbul. Yes. I'd love to. I've traveled a lot. And at that point I had a, I was a temporary resident of Turkey and I lived there for a while and sailed around and did lots of really fabulous things. And part of that journey was living in a loft in Istanbul. And that was where I wrote, I think that would have been about the fifth, the fourth or fifth manuscript. And it was just fabulous. I was in a part of the city which is called Galata, and from my uh, veranda balcony, I could see the Blue Mosque and a couple of others and listen to the call to prayer several times a day, etc. So it was a really lovely time and very precious memories, really fortunate, and they come back to me many times. I'm sure I have very fond memories of visiting Istanbul and Turkey when I was travelling in my 20s and right. somewhere I've always wanted to go back to and I haven't got there as yet. Yeah, but Likewise, but yeah, yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah, like you say, the atmosphere with the, just the sensory deep atmosphere in a place like Istanbul is amazing, isn't it? The sounds and the sights and the smells, they're just all there. But, yeah, absolutely, and so diverse. And 
I actually found it a very non-judgmental country. It was very accepting. Obviously, refugees come from all over the place via Turkey. It's such a gateway there. Yeah, lovely. Love it. Love the people. It was fabulous. Fantastic. Can we just delve a little bit more into the dyslexia issue, Serena? Obviously, as someone, as you say, who went through the schooling system at a time when issues like dyslexia weren't really dealt with very well. I know I was a high school teacher myself and we were never trained in dealing with any sort of special needs or anything like that, or even just as an English teacher, even to just be trained in diagnosing, noticing dyslexia, none of that really happened. So I can imagine it must have been very difficult for you going through the schooling system with that. And as you say, it impacting your self-esteem and what you felt you could do and what you couldn't do. So when you were bitten by that, that writing bug, it must have been a very difficult thing for you being pulled towards that urge to write, but then also having this wall up that you must have had as a result of those years of schooling. Yeah, absolutely. It was, on the one hand, a fabulous thing to to pop into my head, so to speak, to be inflicted. But on the other hand, it was really a bit more of a trauma. Dyslexia has been likened to a slow drip trauma. And I think I possibly didn't realise to the extent that it had impacted because you just become, because it starts as soon as you start school. So it becomes part of you and you just adjust. Human beings adjust to all these to adversity in a remarkable way. So you just adjust. And yeah, it was extremely difficult. It was one of the most difficult things I think I've ever had to personally do, decisions to make, to shut that need to write down. But that's how powerful my fear was, just putting work out that I knew people would pick to bits because I couldn't spell. It's adding that additional sort of anxiety around it, isn't it? Because it's already very nerve-wracking to let other people read your work. But when you've got that additional issue going on, it must sure exponentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a really difficult time. I was anxious about writing birthday cards at those at that point. I couldn't write a birthday card. It was just that anxiety that goes through. And people, they don't mean to be cruel or disrespectful in any ways, but they just, they Bye. if you write something, and there's, I often said, if you ever get a letter from me, a handwritten letter, and there's no crossouts and mistakes through it, it didn't come from me. But people will point and laugh at a misspelling. And I, that would always be quite difficult for me to, to cope with it. Because you, and it just shuts you down a little bit more because you don't want to be laughed at. Who wants to be laughed at growing up, really? Absolutely. And then, yeah. You know. At any point, and you take that with you into adulthood, of course. Definitely. That trauma. So when, as you say, the advent of computers really changed things for you, how did that turn things around, having access to the computer? And how is that, just from a technical perspective, how is it different working on a computer to the sort of hand-brain coordination that you're doing when you're handwriting? Mostly because the word programs have little red squiggly lines. Right. All the knee things. And you go, oh, there's an error. So then I would look up as to why it was an error. It would give you the options and the different spellings or what have you, or the fact that I was using a lot of fragments or sticking commas in or taking them out or tinkling around with those things. And so it would tell me. Mm. And I would go, ah, okay. So then I could rectify that and work on that problem. 
Yeah. Because if you can't spell and put a sentence together, you stop trying in a classroom setting because your work just keeps coming back with fail or lots of red lines or what have you through it. So you stop trying. So you lose the basic framework. I never gained the basic framework of structure. So the computer had that basic framework programmed into it. And it would just tell me and I would be able to learn that. Because, of course, the whole act of reading must have been almost impossible for you to sit down and read a book. How did that be- – and then say you're not absorbing those, the natural yeah. story structures and things. How was that? Look, there are four different sorts of dyslexia that don't ask me to rattle them off. Yeah. I can't remember them, but reading didn't really – it didn't really impact me other than I hadn't learnt stuff but I could still read. I remember reading my first sort of young adult novel and loving every minute of it and devouring the book. And I don't know, I would have been about 12 or 14 or something like that. But So I've never really had a huge problem with reading as such. It was remembering that I had the problem with. Um, So trying to remember words, even now, because you don't really get over it. You don't it, you can't cure it, but you can manage the impact of it. Mm. But it takes lots and lots of practice. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it took me so long, really, Yeah, 20-year writing journey, because I had to get over the dyslexia first and learn the stuff that I didn't learn. And the computer taught me all that. And then, of course, as that, as my ability grew, then my enjoyment of reading grew. So it just expanded from there. And I did lots of short courses and workshops and mentorships and things like that through various organisations and became connected within the writing community and to other people who wrote. And so it's just, it was just a huge, fantastic learning curve for me. It was like opening the curtains, so to speak. And yeah, so that's how it went. And I do remember people suggesting that perhaps you might want to self-publish or something like that. But I think for someone who is coming out of dyslexia and learning about the English language and the beauty of it and what can be done with it is fantastic. And for me, as a dyslexic, with with the self-esteem issues around the English language, I would never have felt like I was a, or felt satisfied with that achievement, like I was a real true dinks author unless I was traditionally published. So I never wanted to be any other kind of an author other than that. Totally understandable. And so you were saying, Serena, that you had written four books prior to The Brothers. So in a sense, you're learning with each novel that you write. How, When you did write The Brothers, and I'm going to get on to, we're going to end up talking about the actual book in a moment, but when you did complete that one or you got through the first draft or whatever, was there a point where you thought, this is the one that I'm really going to try and get out there? What was your thinking around and having that one published as opposed to the others that you'd been working on? Yeah, I think, I think it was a combination of things. The first four were actually international, were set in the one in Istanbul was set in Turkey and so on and so forth. And The Brothers was the first Australian story. And I'd been wanting to write an Australian story for a while, but I'd been working on these other projects and I wanted to finish them first. So when I started The Brothers, I knew I had a character in Jake that was compelling enough to carry the story. So yeah, I think that was the one that sort of felt more natural or more organic and I had a better grasp of what I was doing. 
But I never had any great, I never went, ah, yes, this is the one. This will get me through the door. No, never. And I don't think that I ever thought that I would be published. Yes, you'll always, every runner hopes for it and tries for it. But I've also been very driven to to do it. So it Mm. it was a 20 year drive that pretty much exhausted me. But the brothers, I suppose, had, yeah, it just had something about it that I thought this one is worth pushing. Mm. If I get there, great. If I don't, I'll give it my best shot. And as the story progressed and the other characters came in, just, yeah, I just love those characters. Tell us about them. Tell us about the book, what it's about and who we meet in the story. Okay. So it's a, the line is that it's a contemporary Australian thriller, crime thriller set on Victoria's southwest coast. It centres around Jake Harlow, who is a combat veteran who was injured on his last deployment to Afghanistan. When I say injured, he was captured and not treated very well and she was shot escaping. So he's still recovering in Perth when his younger brother, Tom, drowns off Victoria's coast. So Jake returns to the coast for his brother's funeral and it's the coast that he knows from. that's his community where he grew up but he hadn't been there for been away for about 15 years at that point so he returns to for the funeral and finds the first in a series of notes of threatening anonymous notes in his bed after the wake and as a couple more notes follow he certainly begins to suspect that his brother's death wasn't an accident and he teams up with his brother's best mate, who is nicknamed Stocky, and he lives next door. So he teams up with him and also with his one of his brother's ex-girlfriends, Lucy, and the three of them try to work out where the notes are coming from before it's too late. So that's the synopsis. And I enjoyed... <sighs> I love the interaction between those three main characters, the little sort of jibes that they'll have and then be incredibly supportive, but using humour to break the stress and the tolerance that they have for Jake and his situation. It's just such a, it's a lovely friendship that I'm writing the second one at the moment. And I just, sometimes I can just walk away from my computer going, oh, I love these. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So where did the inspiration for this particular story, Serena, come from in these characters? I've had a lot to do with the coast. I grew up down the coast, so the setting was there, although I'm Melbourne-born and bred, but certainly always had a holiday house down there. And when I married my husband, I bought our first home down the coast. So I'm very familiar with the territory, and I love the setting, and I thought it would be quite, it would lend itself quite well to a crime thriller. The book itself started with the premise of what would you do if you began to receive threatening anonymous notes? Full stop. And the more I thought about that, the more I realised what really depends on your experience, what you've been through, who you are, how old you are, whether you're male or female, if you live alone. There was so many variables in this. For a crime thriller, obviously I wanted a character who would behave in a particular way. So Jake has the skills and experience to be able to look into what is going on. He also has more confidence in his own ability than he does have with the police, the ability of the police to solve the issue and keep them safe. Because it's a, it's a bit of a 
teetering kind of a threat. It's nothing that's really in your face threatening. Uh It's more insidious. So if a crime hasn't been committed and you have these vague kind of threatening notes coming in, it's not unreasonable to expect the police are going to say, we don't have the manpower and until something else happens. So Jake has more confidence in his own ability to get this done and he has the skills and experience to be able to, or the skills and knowledge to be able to deal with that in a manner that won't freak him out. And yeah. So that's where it started with that premise and with the character that behaved in a particular manner that suited that particular genre and away we went. Yeah. And did you, he's an ex-military character, did you have to do, and of course there's the policing issues as well in a crime thriller, so apart from the setting which you were very familiar with, did you have to do a lot of research into different aspects of the characters and the stories? Enormous amount of research. I'm not, I don't have a military background and I wanted to write Jake with a degree of authenticity. I didn't want him doing superhuman things and being unrealistic. Yes, an enormous amount of research. But again, I think this started a long time ago. I was quite close to a gunnery sergeant Marine in the US and he was really helpful in character development early on. And then post-Afghanistan, veterans were far, Australian veterans were far more open with what, how things impacted them, how they coped with certain things, how their families coped. So, the, so there was a lot more information out there. And the first sort of thorough book I read about it was No Front Line okay. by Chris Masters. Oh, yeah, great journalist. And he was the only embedded Australian journalist in Afghanistan and that was allowed to and with limited access. But so his book was written, it's non-fiction, and of course, and there wasn't any emotive pieces, there wasn't any personal opinions, there was something like that, but it was incredibly, I found it incredibly moving. And I knew it was, it's quite a large book and it follows the 20 years. So it follows every deployment chronologically through okay. what squadrons went yeah, the, and who was leading certain things. And I found it, I knew throughout my time of reading this book that tears were just behind the eyes because I had no idea what, was, what went on in Afghanistan and why would we? Because it wasn't reported. Yeah, exactly. So we had no knowledge of it as civilians. And so to learn all that was fairly shocking. And when I finished the book, I did in fact cry. And it probably took me a couple of weeks to get back on my feet again after it. And it took a long time to work out why it upset me so much. There are the obvious things of young promising lives being lost and the impact on families. They're the obvious kind of things that you think about. But It just didn't seem to add up to what I was feeling and it did take a couple of weeks to realise that I felt like our country had lost its innocence, that I had lost my innocence. That's what we're all in the process. It was just something, it was a war that being involved in, it's difficult to pass a judgement on it without sounding political, but I think the old cliche of too much was asked of too few. Uh. And yeah, it was a really moving experience researching all of this. And there is a lot of material out there. Some veterans, of course, that will not be particularly prepared to share a lot of things, but others are incredibly open and vulnerable about it. It was a really 
fabulous experience. Mm. I've tried to, where possible, include those human characteristics in Jake as the, those vulnerabilities that he's just waking up to. Right, yeah, because of those experiences, of course, that you'd read about in the nonfiction is what he had lived through as part of being in that particular conflict. And so it's definitely informing his character, isn't it? For sure. And it comes in different levels too, at different times. So it's not going to come all at once. They're not going to wake up one morning and go, oh, okay, I'm getting headaches because of or whatever. It's a process for them as well. Yeah. So Jake is working through that process in the book, in the early kind of process. And it is like the added complexity of being injured. And so having to medically discharge and work through the physical changes and disabilities that he's left with at the same time. So there's a lot of different sort of levels that, that within the process. Yeah, for sure. So as some, this is obviously got that thriller aspect to it. There's the crime, the mystery about where the notes are coming from, what's happened to Tom. Had the other previous novels that you'd written been in the same vein, Serena? They were certainly in the same genre, but with different sort of characters and aspects of it. I hadn't written a full military protagonist before, although they, there may have been elements, military or policing or intelligence, there may have been those kind of elements in it, but not to this extent. And what's your process like when you sit down to write a novel? Where does where do you start? Are you starting with a, a character? Are you starting with, you said you mentioned that question that you had, so I'm, I'm guessing that formed a big basis for the story when you started, but what's your process like? Do you plan out? Do you just dive in? I'm a pantser. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my favourite authors, Dennis Lehane, said one day, because he's a pantser and I was watching an interview and he said, if I don't know where the story's going, the reader won't. And, and that always stuck with me. And yeah, I just dive in and start. First yep. line on the page and away we go. And of course, it rarely would it ever stay the first line, but yeah, that's how I do it. Mm. And I write in the mornings. I write every day. I, when I say to people I write every day, they will often think, okay, Monday to Friday or here and the big days off in their mind. I write every day and unless I've got something that's happening, which was it was yes. Christmas day or something like that. <laughs> but routinely I write every day. And do you tend to write to a, a time or a word count? What's your... No, no. Some days I might write 100 words. Some days I might write 2,000 words. And the days I write 50 words, I, you feel a little inadequate, but I may have revised 5,000 words, but only have writ only written 20. So it's just, it varies. And the morning's the best time. Of course, as most writers will attest when the brain is the freshest. Definitely for me too. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be a late night person, but then kids came along and ruined me for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally I'll be on a roll and I'll ride into the dark, but it's not a regular thing. Yeah, yeah. So how long would you say it would have taken you to do the draft of The Brothers? Start to finish post one professional assessment was six months. Okay, it's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. And then I wrote the second one and that took about two months. That just flowed and I had an absolute ball, but that's just sitting on, sitting maybe further up. But this real second one that I'm writing, this one is in fact the fifth version of it. And I'm not talking about small versions. I'm dead yeah. to 60,000 words and going, nah, this isn't working. So 
I'm on the fifth version of it now, and I have much more um, confidence in this fifth version. So this one's t- the second one, which was originally the third, but it has now come forward as the second. And as when I realised it was the second and not the third, that's when it became easier to write. Okay. And that, is that connected to the brothers? Is that a following? Yes. I yeah. tried to write it as a standalone with different characters. That's the, when I started. But the three characters from the brothers just pushed their way. <laughs> so it became about those characters again, essentially. So I thought, well, I'll stick with them as long as I want to write about them and I find it interesting and they interact really well. I'll stick with them. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And so once you had the draft and there'd been some revisions and everything for the brothers, Serena, how, what was the next step for you? How did, where did you get to the point where you thought, I'm ready to start submitting this? And how did you go about that? I've always had, I've had a, I've never really been that shy about submitting. Mm. So I've often, all, even the previous manuscripts that were practice manuscripts and not written in Australia, they've been submitted to over the years as well. I guess it was a timing thing. By the time it had been assessed and I was fairly happy with the result, I knew it was a long way from perfect, but I was fairly happy with the result. I submitted it to one of the Varuna Fellowships, so the Publishers Introduction Program Fellowship. I've always had a lot to do with Varuna, stayed there a number of times as a paying guest. So I submitted to their fellowship and it was shortlisted, which just was probably the biggest shock. That was probably the most yippee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Being shortlisted, I didn't, it didn't really matter if I won or not. It was the fact that was the first professional recognition, I think, that I'd had yeah. from, for my work. So anyway, I was awarded that fellowship through HarperCollins and that was March 2020, and then COVID hit. Mm. Mm. And I really don't need to say much more no. <laughs> <laughs> about that. Yeah, so COVID moved the goalposts around several times, but eventually uh, HarperCollins and I came to an arrangement, I think, in August last year. So, yeah, signed the contract in December. Fantastic. And away we went. Yeah, that was had lots of changes since then, but the basic premise and basic characters are still the same. Mm. Um, and it's far more polished now. <laughs> so that's another whole new learning curve, isn't it, when you're dealing with professional editors and a traditional public- publishing house? Sure, absolutely. And it's been a, a fabulous experience and great opportunities to work with these people and from a writer's point of view to, and to get your head around the business side of writing mm. as opposed to the creative side. Um, and the, there's so many dedicated, fabulous people in the industry that it's just a privilege to work with, really. HarperCollins have just been fantastic and incredibly supportive. I'm not sure what I expected, but I think I was probably a little cynical about publishers because it is so hard for a writer to be a publisher. In the absence of information, you make perhaps not very accurate judgments, but I've been really pleasantly surprised by HarperCollins and the level of professionalism and their support. Yeah, terrific. You mentioned that whole idea of the business too. So you'd moved from someone who'd been working creatively on these novels for a number of years and then suddenly you're in the publishing business when you become involved with a traditional publisher. How have you found the whole business side of things in terms of being interviewed, being on social media, all those sorts of things? How have you adjusted to that? Slowly. 
word and an adverb as well. No, look, it's been good. It's been a great opportunity. Again, it sounds, it sounds so cliche, but it is. It's a fabulous opportunity to meet people and to learn new skills. If anything, I find the social media a bit time consuming and I'm not very good at it. So I make a lot of mistakes. Um, but I'm trying. But I'm trying. So yeah, it's a bit time consuming. It takes you away from the actual process of writing. But the double-edged sword thing again. We meet people and really dedicated people that have incredible interests and what have you. So yeah, you know, it's time consuming and it takes you away from writing. But yes, you're also gaining a lot of other knowledge and experience. But that can bleed into more creativity. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very true. And you mentioned doing a lot of workshops. You've been to Varuna. So you've been doing all those things over a number of years. And how have you found being part of the Australian writing community and how that's developed for you? I'm still on the fringe of it, really. But they're incredibly supportive, actually, when, particularly for debuts when you come up against other debut novelists. They're incredibly supportive of each other. And we'll use their social media platforms to help you and you'll use their, yours to help them. So it, it is a community and it's just so separated by distance and geography that it, sometimes it's easy to forget that it's a community. But you'll get a little surprise of someone putting something, a post up and you'll go, oh, they are thinking of the other debuts out there. And it's a, it's a give and take community. It's good. And I had, of course, heard this, how well Australian writers support each other. But I always thought, well, I don't know. I have no yardstick. But certainly, yeah, I think they are very supportive. Mm. Yeah. And as someone, Serena, who has, you have had to overcome that early issue with your dyslexia, which has obviously been not going through your adult life as well. And just even writing and getting work out there can be quite intimidating and quite a scary thing for everybody. But what advice would you give to anyone who might be listening to the podcast, aspiring or emerging authors who are out there beavering away on their novel and in a pursuit in an industry which can sometimes be quite disillusioning? What would you say to anybody out there who might be listening? I would say I wish I had just one piece of advice that would help them. It's the same things, read a lot, write a lot and don't give up. What is there to lose to put yourself out there, put your work out there? Yeah, okay, people may not like it. It may end up in the bin. But if you don't put it out there, you will never know. And if that's your goal, a lot of people write just to to, to vent their, like, talk about journaling, so to speak, talk about various aspects or events in their life. They write for their own pleasure. They don't have a, a goal to be published. But if your goal is to be published, and mine certainly was, then you have to keep going. And you can't take it personally. You really can't. It's not personal. If, you, if your work doesn't hit the spot of one particular competition or publisher or agent or whatever, it doesn't mean that it's no good. It's not about you. It's just the fact that Whatever you've produced isn't right for them at that time. I know it's hard and it's very easy to after the fact. But I always, one of the most difficult things I found after signing the contract was to not keep putting my work out there. I was always looking for the next opportunity. If there would be the competitions, we knew when the competitions were, when the fellowships were being run. And so there was, or just the, what are the various 
publishers, they have various names for their... Oh, the like manuscript development programs and submissions <coughs> and things like that. Like manuscript Mondays or... Yeah. Free Fridays, I don't know. That's right, Alan and Unwin, I think. Yeah, so... Friday, yeah. That's it, yeah. So I was always... So there was always... And so I generally had two in the works, always. And when that one failed, there was always another one that went on the other end. Yeah. And I don't think that you cannot do that. If you want to be published, just thinking about this the other day, if I'd known in the very beginning, 20 years ago, what it was actually, how long it was actually going to take, what it was going to require, how much I was going to have to sacrifice, I wonder whether I would have made the same decisions. I haven't really come up with an answer, but it's other than to know that I could not have not written. Yeah. And lots of writers will say the same thing, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, Rachel Johns is a friend of mine and she's been on the podcast numerous times. I've heard her say quite a few times now, if people say to her, oh, something about writing, it's such a hard business. And she kind of says, and if you can give it up, because <laughs> it is a hard right ahead. And yeah, but. The reality is for many of us, you can't give it up. That's right. Yeah. And even just prior to, so I'd won, I'd been awarded the fellowship, but Veruna, not Veruna, coronavirus was throwing a spanner in the works with everyone. No one publishers didn't know what sort of impact that was going to have on them. So everyone was in limbo and I was continuing to enter competitions or whatever. But I knew I'd come to the point where I'd pretty much burnt out, but that's after 20 years. Mm. And I knew, okay, if this, do, if this fellowship doesn't come off, I'm going to take a step back. I didn't think I could stop writing, but I had to take a step back and try and decide what it was that I wanted to achieve from there. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think most people would get to that point at some stage in their writing mm. career. I think that's fabulous advice, a really interesting conversation. So you were saying that the one you're working on now is the second in the series? Yes. Yeah. Apparently. (laughs) Apparently, yeah. And so we have the the same characters. Is it the same protagonist? Yes. Yes. So now basically we're going to follow Jake because he, um, that's a lot of trauma to endure. And it's all very well to smash a car up against the brick wall, but it has to be repaired and drivable again. It's not going to look the same, <laughs> but, but it's going to be drivable again. I've had to travel with Jake through this process of now how do I heal, how do I get on with it? And that's a really interesting, been a really interesting journey so far. And that's uh, still set around the coastal area, although not in exactly the same place. Of course, I've just come back from the Northern Beaches Readers Festival, which was oh, yeah. one. Oh, yeah. And you. there were some amazing crime panels and crime authors there. And it's there's just been this absolutely massive surge of Australian crime and thriller fiction, hasn't there? I know. I know. I wonder, t- though, too, whether it's post, a post-COVID thing as well. We're now getting out there again. It's like, yeah, out there again. Yeah, yeah. They've been squirreling away at home, working out on great stories. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, everybody's now got them ready to go, but there seems to be a huge appetite for them amongst readers too, which is fabulous. But what would you say, just as a final question, Serena, this is something I like to ask my guests, what would you say is at the heart of your writing? Oh, God, what a question. (laughs) I liked you up until that. I don't know. Characters. 
I love the interactions that can happen between characters. And the best part of writing a story for me is when the characters take the story off in a completely different direction to what I thought. I love that. I step away feeling really satisfied and like I've had a great day of writing. So I think probably characters mm. at, at the centre. It's probably not the sort of answer you want to know. No, there's no one right response, <laughs> really, and it's always whatever comes to you first. So I think that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just love creating them like because they can't exist in a vacuum. So you create a character, you're creating life and all the, their family members and their history and the family members have to have a life as well to a degree. So, so you start with that character and you give them certain characteristics and values and then it, the story sort of grows out from there. And I think if you do, I'm, I'm not sure I'm great at plot, I think if your characters are developed well enough, then they can take the plot, they can carry it with them. Absolutely. The plot comes from the character and, and yeah. their lives. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I'm very much the same. Yeah. Well, okay. What do you yeah. write, if you don't mind me asking? I wrote, um, I wrote women's fiction, so contemporary women's fiction. And my first four books were published with Hachette under the rural romance banner, but they're really women's stories. There's a romantic element in there, but they're really women's stories. And I've independently published a fifth book, a fifth women's fiction book. So, yeah, I'm very much writing about character as well and the psychology and emotions around character is what really interests me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's overthinking it, I don't know, or ever cooking the egg, but I think it's really important. And in some ways it's incumbent upon a contemporary writer, regardless of genre, to to have these kinds of discussions within your character group so that they do, because they reflect society and I think society is, waking up more to the impacts of trauma and how it can be insidious but it can be large or how various things that you've experienced uh, affect your choices now and your various directions that you choose to go in. So I think it's incumbent upon a writer to include that in canvas. The day when you could put a flat character on a page, I think... (laughs) Yeah. And of course, it makes the story so much more compelling and interesting if you've got those depths to your characters and to the relationships, doesn't it? Yeah, and connecting. The readers can connect with that, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to read some of your work now. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Serena, on Rights for Women. It's been really great to talk to you, really interesting. And The Brothers is out now and it's available, I'm guessing, in all good bookstores and online. Thank you, Pamela. You've been a delight to talk to. Been lovely to chat. Yeah, yeah. And where can people find you online, Serena? I'm on Instagram, SD yep. Hinton. Okay, SD Hinton on Insta. Yep, brilliant. Yeah. All right, well, all you do for Australian writers, it's fantastic. Oh, that's okay. I really enjoy it. I do use it a progress- as a procrastination tool, which is very <laughs> bad. But I do enjoy chatting to Very it. productive procrastination tool. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too.
You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>